and welcome to episode 1487 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. It has been a wild week thus far, and so we are presenting our podcasting kind of out of order. So Sam and I recorded a non-time-sensitive episode on Monday before the Astros report came out. Then we bumped that back a bit, put it on the back burner so that you and I could discuss that report. That episode is already out. Most of this episode is going to be what Sam and I recorded on Monday. But since we recorded our last episode (laughs) together, there's been more big news. And so we felt that we had to step in and record a new introduction to this episode that would cover that. So it's uh, been a sequencing issue, but I think hopefully things will settle down a little and we can just continue to record in order after this. Anyway, the big news that we are here to talk about is twofold. The Red Sox fired Alex Cora. And the Twins signed the last star-level free agent available, Josh Donaldson. So with Cora, this was inevitable as soon as the Astros report came out and detailed all of the ways that Cora contributed to the Astros sign-stealing efforts and presumably to the Red Sox sign-stealing efforts, although that has not yet been revealed. And the question was, would the Red Sox fire him now or would they wait for that MLB investigation into the Red Sox sign stealing to come out before doing so? And evidently they decided that there was no time like the present and they parted ways with him on Tuesday. I think we should just like take a moment to marvel at the last 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In the last 24 hours, I know that, you know, the... The beginning of Hinch's tenure in Houston, he did not have the reputation, uh, setting aside the, the cheating part of this, setting aside what the the banging scheme, okay? the banging <laughs> you scheme. You get one more of those in there. Oh, one more. That's, that's optimistic of you. Setting aside that, you know, he had a, a very, a pretty sterling reputation and managed to escape even the, the Brandon Taubman incident and some of the club's hostility toward credentialed media relatively unscathed. I think that Cora, as, as we discussed on the pod, was very well respected. In Boston, you can tell that there is some regret at the inevitability of this decision in the Red Sox statement from ownership on this decision, but two of the the sort of bright, youngish stars in the managerial ranks. Mm-hmm. And now they are both gone. <laughs> yep, just like that. <laughs> so I think it's a pretty stunning uh, 24-hour stretch in an already busy off-season. So there's that. I think, as you said, as we discussed earlier today, that this was coming. I don't know that there is a tremendous amount of benefit to getting ahead of that decision, but I also don't think that there's anything to lose. I mean, it's just yeah. uh, they were going to be in the market for a new manager, you know, what, a month before pitchers and catchers report, no matter <laughs> yeah. what. So it's not ideal. Remember when the Red Sox fired their general manager like really early <laughs> to get a, a jump on the offseason? <laughs> Remember when the person in charge of putting together and managing the 2018 team that won 108 games in the World Series both got dismissed? Like, 
a year or a year and a half or, or less after uh, that World Series win. I'm not laughing because it's actually funny. I'm just, it's sort of, it's stunning. It's a stunning turn of events. So you can tell from the statement that Cora regrets the inevitability of this. You can tell that ownership, I think, was probably not super pleased. Although, as with the Astros, I think that, you know, the galaxy brain part of me thinks that there was probably an understanding reached between the ownership of the team and the league that something like this was going to be necessary as part of a cleaning house to address the sign-stealing stuff. But man... What a what a decade for managerial moves in Boston. Yeah, yeah seriously. That's not this an easy, a, not an easy spot. Fourth manager since uh, Frank Kona was fired, something like that, and yeah. there's been all the turnover with the GMs and presidents of baseball ops. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess now Heim Bloom gets to bring in his own person or yeah. maybe not necessarily because it's the middle of January, which is not really a great time to hire managers. So I don't know if they'll just promote bench coach Ron Renicky for now, unless he ends up being implicated in whatever sign stealing report comes out about the Red Sox. But yeah. that would be the easy move, I guess. The statement is sort of interesting because it's not like Red Sox ownership came out and condemned Cora and said, oh, we're so disappointed in Alex or anything like that. They said, this is a sad day for us. Alex is a special person and a beloved member of the Red Sox. We're grateful for his impact on our franchise. We will miss his passion, his energy, and his significant contributions to the communities of New England and Puerto Rico. And then Cora doesn't really directly address all the news that came out either. He says that it was the best thing for the organization. I don't want to be a distraction to the Red Sox. So maybe he is saving his either remorseful or defiant statement for when that report comes out and when his suspension comes down, as it almost inevitably seems like it will, this is not going to stop him from getting suspended. So he was not going to be managing in the majors this year and potentially for future years, regardless of when they decided to pull the plug. Yeah, I think that, well, like we talked about, if a suspension from, you know, Monday to the day after the World Series was in the offing for Hinch, it just seemed likely that the, you know, the guy who helped to, not single-handedly, I'm sure, but helped to sort of spread that practice beyond Houston, who was doing so at a club that had prior infractions, was it just seemed likely that he was going to face a multi-year suspension at the at the very least if not a lifetime ban so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i guess once that report comes out then there's no benefit to continuing to be associated with that person like you don't want people to conclude that you are standing by that person or that you're not bothered by those findings and I guess it behooves you to move on and figure out what you're going to do as soon as you can. So, yeah, no downside to doing this, to acting as swiftly as they did. I I wasn't sure when it would happen, but not shocked that it happened so soon. No, not not shocked either. And then the twins said, hey, (laughs) hey, over here. (laughs) Yeah, I know. They should have like released this news uh, on a less busier yes. news day in baseball. Like you know, get the full benefit of the attention of signing a superstar. Don't do it in the middle of Astros and Red Sox sign stealing gate. But yeah, Twins made a major move. 
I don't think that the Twins were trying to show up the Astros or the Red Sox for the news cycle. Clearly, this move was a direct shot, a sign of aggression, a move that will haunt them through the entire regular season against the Oakland Athletics and their trade for Tony Kemp, <laughs> which also happened, which yeah. happened yesterday as the Astros uh, report was dropping. So, yeah, I think that we should invest in that rivalry. But yes, the the last really significant free agent on the market is off the board and it is january 14th yes yeah, two full nice. it's like two months two months before some of the other nonsense last year that sure mm-hmm. is great yeah i don't know what we're going to talk about for those two months but but it is probably good for baseball <sighs> that yeah, but these it means things we have get happened to- Ben, now we get to get real weird, though. We get to get <laughs> so <true>. weird. Yeah. <laughs> I love it when we get to get weird. Me too. Ugh. So this deal is for a guaranteed four years, and there's an option at the end of it. So it's uh, there's a buyout also. So there's a guarantee of $92 million. It could be up to five years and $100 million. And Donaldson is still a really great player. I don't know if he will be for the entire life of this deal, but for now, he's excellent. He's coming off a a great season, and the Twins were sort of stymied in their pursuit of starting pitchers, and Donaldson doesn't help in that respect, except that he does improve the defense considerably, which was not a strength of the Twins last season, especially in the infield, and Donaldson's presence allows them to shift Miguel Sano over to first base, so that's a big defensive upgrade and obviously a big offensive upgrade for a team that already had a heck of an offense, so really this team, this lineup has lost grown in scope from last year's lineup and added Donaldson and I guess a full season of Arise, which seems like a, a net positive, and I don't know that Everyone from that lineup last year will hit as well as they did in 2019, but still, they now have six guys who hit 30 or more homers last year, which uh, even in 2019, inflated home run hitting is uh, something, and this is really a, a pretty powerhouse lineup, so they... Didn't get all of the starting pitching that they wanted to get, but runs saved in the field are as good as runs prevented on the mound. Runs added at the plate are as good as runs prevented on the mound. They're all runs. They're all wins. So this makes the Twins better, and it makes the AL Central suddenly even more exciting. I find well I have I have a couple of thoughts on this the first of which is that there is something sort of inherently satisfying about a guy who got a late start you know has been really didn't break out onto the scene until his late 20s kind of making good in this way so there's there's that part so mm-hmm. you know good for Josh Donaldson I think that you are right that you know the first half of this contract will likely look better than the back half but yeah he's 34 but yeah, yeah. he's 34 but so Jay Jaffe is writing about this deal for Fangraphs. Right now, Donaldson's Zips projection for 2020 has him at almost four wins, almost three in 2021, and then the uh, production starts to tail from there, which isn't that surprising, especially given his age. One of the things that I find really fascinating about the Twins, because I think they're a, a smart organization, they have approached the way that they are constructing their roster, I think, in a way that is cool and dynamic. Uh, they have done some interesting fielding work. You know, they were one of the 
first organizations this past year that we heard about encouraging catchers to go to one knee to try to improve their defensive sort of lateral positioning back there. At a time when we see a lot of organizations trying to maximize positional versatility from their players, they have a lot of guys who are sort of locked in to where they are just by virtue of not being particularly sterling in the field. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I don't know, it's just interesting, right? There are a lot of ways that you can build a roster, as you said, runs are runs and wins are wins, and you can get at them a lot of different ways. And they have clearly elected to prioritize the offense, at least among their position players, and are a little less concerned about how things have shaken out defensively. Uh, I guess, you know, they have a very notable exception to, to that statement in center field, but it's just an interesting, different way to pull a bunch of wins together than what we see from some other teams where you want guys who are competent enough at multiple positions where you can play them, you know, on the infield or in the outfield or, you know, in the stands where they're going to catch balls too. So it's just, I, I like that we have a slightly different way of constructing that same set of wins mm-hmm. and yeah, they're going to thump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my stars will they thump. <laughs> I know you've got the the new and improved White Sox. You've got the Twins who can mash. You've got Cleveland who can still pitch. So yeah. this is uh, suddenly kind of a competitive and potentially even fun division. So that's that's a nice change from recent years. Yeah, yeah, and you know to have to have multiple teams in that division really trying to try. Mm-hmm. Is good. I do worry, and I I don't say this to excuse the behavior, but I do worry that uh, that Cleveland will look at this and say, "Oh heck," mm-hmm. and start shedding. Yeah, let's trade some more guys yeah. while we're at it. Yeah, yeah. This is the biggest free agent signing in Twins history, so good for them. Yeah, and it does leave the Braves with. A comp pick, but without a third baseman. So they'll have to figure that out. And I don't know if this will maybe kickstart the trade market at third base, whether mm-hmm. this accelerates discussions about Chris Bryant or Nolan Arenado. I suppose we will see. There were other teams that were in the market for Donaldson at various points, and they didn't get him. So Yeah, exciting move and uh, the last major one that we will see for a while, unless it's a a trade. We might still see some of those. Yeah, you see, you say that, you say those words, and then I'm going (laughs) to end up editing a whole bunch of trade pieces, and we're going to have to get it back on the podcast, and Mm -hmm. uh, it'll just be, it'll just be a busy, busy time, and then no one will ever remember who any of the players are on any of the teams. Could be. Could be true. I will also say, by the way, I made a note to mention this, that I've appreciated the pettiness that has surfaced over the past day or so. Not all of the pettiness, not the most mean-spirited of the pettiness, but there has been some player pettiness that has amused me. For instance, it was noticed and reported that Aaron Judge seems to have deleted his Instagram oh. post from 2017 in which he congratulated Jose Altuve on winning the AL MVP award over Aaron Judge. So at the time in November 2017, he wrote MVP, nobody more deserving than you. Congrats on an unforgettable 2017, Jose Altuve. And that Instagram post is conspicuously absent now. So it seems like he may have gone back in the wake of the science stealing news and decided that Altuve maybe was not more deserving 
than he himself was. So that was kind of amusing. And even more amusing, I think, is that Mike Miner kind of <laughs> tap danced on Alex Cora's professional grave here. Really? I had completely forgotten about the Mike Miner, Alex Cora beef. Do you remember no. on the last day of the season or, or Mike Miner's last oh, outing? Yeah. His 200th strikeout controversy where oh Ronald God. Guzman dropped what would have been an out, thereby allowing Mike Miner to get another strikeout, which was his 200th of the season. And then there was this whole backlash to, oh, that's a, a Bush League way to get your 200th strikeout. And Alex Cora was, I think, one of the people who expressed displeasure about how the Rangers handled that situation. And Cora said, I'm just happy our guys play the game the right way. <laughs> and so here comes Mike Miner months later, long after I had forgotten about about this story to tweet but but he plays the game the right way (laughs) what you got pete and pete is a reference to red sox beat writer pete abraham who tweeted something about how what mike minor did was unprofessional so mike minor off the top rope no one really remembered the mike minor story but clearly he remembered what alex cora said about that strikeout and he chose this time to gloat See, I find this uh, – earlier today I said that we should stop being so impressed and amused by <laughs> some of the Twitter beef, but I, I grant an exception to both of these. I think the judge's thing is just delightful because mm-hmm. that is a subtle – you know, he's not – he's not he's saying something without saying something, and that's yep. always fun. And I had totally forgotten the – the yeah. silliness about I'm happy this. Just to be reminded of that ridiculous yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, man. That's great. That's fantastic. Did you see, Ben, did you see that the Staten Island Yankees are doing a trash can giveaway? Oh, yes. Yeah. One of the things I'm looking forward to, I think, in the 2020 season is just seeing the creativity that visiting fan bases will bring to taunting the Astros throughout the season because you know there are going to be signs and cardboard trash cans and taunts and coordinated cheers and who knows what. Like They're not going to let the Astros forget what they did, which given the fact that some of the 2020 Astros are also 2017 and 2018 Astros is, I think, fair and reasonable so those players didn't get suspended or directly punished but fans will attempt to punish them in other ways i agree with everything you just said (laughs) and i would like to say the following which is it, it is specifically funny to me that a yankees affiliate did that when they have been subject to their own bits of nonsense around this stuff and True. just generally has a real Icarusy kind of vibe man yes, it does <laughs> it is early in the going to be so confident <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean fans Oh, Ben, the signs, the signs we're going to see, the faces I'm going to be able to grab. I, (laughs) mm, nom, 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 nom. But I think it's really different when it's fans or even like a, you know, like a stadium DJ. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. all fine. But it's, it's January 14th and we know we're not done with this just generally. I'm not saying with the Yankees in particular, I'm not saying that, but just generally we know we're not done. And folks are out here getting sassy with their marketing campaigns. And boy, is that ripe for 
some wax wing nonsense. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, Batman and I joke sometimes about how if we tried to copy our pal Jason Concepcion and his excellent NBA desktop show, if we tried to do MLB desktop, we'd have enough material for like three episodes a year or something because <laughs> there just isn't nearly as much drama and public beef in baseball as there is in basketball but these last couple days have given us enough material for a few shows there it's been the rare exception where people are actually publicly airing their grievances about the astros and the red sox and all of this coming home to roost so given that we don't get that much of this in baseball i'm enjoying at least some of it Oh, I just I'm thinking I'm just realizing all the faces and signs I'm gonna get to screenshot. Yeah, you know a lot of material for you. Yeah, it's great. It's like I it's like anticipating a birthday present. I know I'm gonna get. It's like oh, there's two thousand words sitting out there for me. I just don't know what they are yet. Oh, what a delight. <laughs> And finally, congrats to Ken Jennings on winning the Jeopardy Greatest of All Time tournament. But before he won, there was a question that was very much in line with many of my interests. The category was portmanteaus, and the clue was a kyber crystal-powered weapon plus baseball statistics analysis system of Bill James, which is just like the the Venn diagram of multiple parts of my personality and professional (laughs) life. The answer, of course, or I should say the question, is what is lightsaber metrics? So kudos to whichever Jeopardy writer came up with that clue, and kudos to former Effectively Wild guest James Holtzauer, who entered it correctly, of course, because he knows a lot about saber metrics and everything in general. So that was fun. That tournament was fun. That clue was uh, right up my alley. Yeah, it's nice when people make art just for you. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we will take a quick break, and then we will bring you the conversation that Sam and I had before all of this hubbub happened. And you and I will talk probably next week. Sounds good. No matter how I try to be just one of the guys, there's a little something inside that won't let me. I am Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good. I just want to quickly wish a happy 70th birthday to my father. Uh, Today is his birthday. I have told him this in real life, but I also want to uh, commemorate it here just because I've noted this before, but my baseball fandom uh, is, is so intrinsically intertwined. Uh, with my family life and uh, with my relationship with my father and uh, all of my fandom and and all of this podcast are uh, pretty clearly uh, in dialogue with him today. And so in my mind, even though he he doesn't appear on this podcast, although he has asked a couple of questions for email episodes, uh, he is a recurring character. He's just off screen all the time. Uh, So I want to say happy birthday to him. 
yeah, happy birthday to him. I'm envious of that aspect of your fandom because I don't really have that. No one in my family cares all that much about baseball. I, I didn't really get my baseball fandom from anyone, I don't think. I don't know. There were sort of peripheral fans in my family, but... I guess no one who I, I think really passed it down to me, maybe indirectly, but I've always been kind of out on an island there in my little clan, and I, I wish that that were a bigger part of my family life. I'm really fascinated by by that aspect of it, so I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. Uh, my, my dad uh, also was not from a family of baseball fans and came to it late, and that's one of the things that has always struck me as so interesting and different is that he he almost learned this as like a skill that he picked up later in life like one might decide to learn how to do woodworking he decided to learn how to be a baseball fan and he kind of committed to it as a hobby and got really good at it but also didn't really have any of that background you were were fairly young when you started being a baseball fan but but all the same do you remember what what it was like what was your first game <laughs> Why did you do it? I think my first game was a, a Yankees-Blue Jays game, and I was rooting for the Blue Jays at the time because I had seen them in the 93 World Series, and I'm half Canadian, and I guess that was enough for me. I was a bandwagon fan, and I thought, this team is good, and I like their uniforms, so I guess I'll root for them, but I didn't really root for them. I was a totally nominal fan, and then I didn't pay attention for a couple of years. I didn't really How old become... were you at this point? Well, I didn't really become a fan, like a true fan, I would say, until like 97, which is when I was, I guess, 10 or so, turning 11. So I went to my first game a few years before that, but I wasn't paying attention in any serious way. So I had like an uncle who liked the Yankees and an aunt who liked the Yankees, but I wasn't particularly close to the uncle. And I don't know, maybe it sort of passed to me through them a little bit, but it wasn't like something we discussed every day at home. So I think I probably just got introduced to it because, I don't know, I lived in New York and there were teams around and you take a kid to a baseball game because that's something you do with a kid, even if you don't really care about baseball that much, I guess. And for whatever reason, it just took. I, I think it helped that the Yankees were entering a dynasty as I was entering that period of, you know, kind of the peak age of starting to care about baseball. So it was uh, pretty easy for me to fall in love with it. Yeah. So I, it was such a, I imagine it was uh, such a topic of conversation in the region when you were a kid that like the Yankees were always around and they were exciting mm -hmm. and there was always something they were playing for. If their dynasty had began in 2001 instead of 96, do you think that you probably would not have been a fan? Was winning hmm. really a necessary part of those first few years of caring or did the game itself and the routine latch onto you as a as a diversion all on its own? It's hard for me to say because that was kind of all I knew at the time. I mean, I, I can't really go back and say if they had been bad, would I have cared because they weren't bad. So if I had been just a few years older and I had gotten introduced to baseball when the Yankees were at their low point in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah, maybe I wouldn't have cared. I don't know. I mean, I lived in upper Manhattan, just a, a few subway stops away from Yankee Stadium. And that was just the, the perfect time for a kid to be a Yankees fan. So 
there's really no way for me to say whether things would have been different, but I think there's a decent chance that if I hadn't happened to come of age alongside some of the best teams of all time, I might not have been quite so enthused about it. So yeah, that probably was part of it. And then I got into the history and I had like an eighth grade English teacher who was just extremely hardcore baseball fan. And he really got me into it in a bigger way, I think. And I borrowed books because he had bookshelves full of baseball books and he would just loan them to kids whoever wanted them and he had an after school gathering for kids to talk about baseball so that probably took it to the next level but yeah I can't really disentangle it from the team that I was most likely to root for being the best at the time. Did you collect cards? Yes, I did. Yeah, I liked cards. I had superhero cards too, but mostly baseball cards, and I had big binders of them. I didn't really know necessarily who the good players were, but I did have a cousin who was into baseball. He played college baseball, and I'd see him every now and then and bring the binders and... He would tell me which cards were good. Yeah, I was. Uh, he, I, I I think that the two crucial things were my were my dad being into it and having it on the radio all the time, and then baseball cards. I think if they had never invented baseball cards, there's a pretty good chance that the habit wouldn't have stuck with me. The profit motive throughout my childhood was there, and it kept me really interested all the time. And of course, all those cards turned out to be totally worthless. And (laughs) yet they were, I mean, they were, I got so much out of them. I got much more out of them than I realized I was getting out of them. I kept on waiting for the payoff from the cards. When I was collecting them, I always thought someday all of this is going to result in in money. And Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that wasn't, apparently that wasn't the point at all at the time. All right. So there's a Hall of Fame announcement coming up in about 10 days and which means that we're getting the, you know, the Hall of Fame tracker that Ryan Thibodeau runs and we're, we're seeing whose votes are up and whose votes are down. And uh, there's a whole bunch of first ballot players this year, uh, one of whom is going to make the Hall of Fame. His name is Derek Jeter. And then a whole bunch of them that are not. And uh, I always like this, uh, these first ballot names, because even though they've only been retired for five years, they a uh, have already kind of fallen into the remember some guys camp of uh, memories and and B they had these players by definition had to have had a a long career and so you see their name on the Hall of Fame and I don't know it's weird because like you take a player like I don't know Raphael Furcal you take a player like Raphael Furcal and you live with with his existence for a really long time and you have some ideas about him and you have some moments that you remember and you think about how good he was and then you put him on a Hall of Fame ballot and it's a to- it's sort of a totally different thing because you then think of him against the line of the Hall of Fame and and you think oh wow yeah he was he was a Hall of Fame level player for moments and then he clearly is out of place here like you see Raphael Furcal's name right next to Roger Clemens' name and that's a weird clash but on the other hand there were he played a long time and there were times when he seemed like he was going to be a Hall of Famer anyway the exercise of of reviewing who the first time ballot guys were got me thinking about the concept of remember some guys Mm -hmm. so i thought that we would maybe just remember these guys the first ballot players and talk about uh, what we remember from each of them but before we do that so i assume most people know what i mean when i say remember some guys but probably a lot of people don't so let's remember some guys was a feature that deadspin introduced what maybe a year and a half two years ago and the concept is very simple David Roth would 
<laughs> would open a pack of baseball cards or a pack of baseball cards would be opened around David Roth. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then he would be asked if he remembers that guy. And then David yep. Roth would say, yeah, no, I remember him. I, he, uh, he had, a uh, he had shaggy hair and played in Topeka for a couple of years. And, uh, then he came up and, uh, some gum got stuck to his shoe and it would be this weird melange of memories that were both very specific and, and also like, like probably not how the player would have defined his career, but it's what lodged into David Roth's memory of them and then you would also remember that that player as david mm -hmm. was remembering him and it was a strange strangely powerful thing to watch david remember these these guys <laughs> and i don't i i my impression is that that was a the, that feature was kind of a smash because it was just a one-off video thing when mm -hmm. Deadspin was introducing a whole bunch of one-off video things and they kept on making more of them and then they started doing remember some guys for other sports i think they do pro wrestling remember some guys they did uh before Deadspin died and remember some guys within like a year i feel like it just became a shorthand that we and other people just toss off whenever one starts nostalgizing Mm -hmm. And so I don't exactly know why it's so powerful to see someone remember Bernard Gilkey. <laughs> Bernard Gilkey, I asked David this question, and Bernard Gilkey was the random name he threw out. But I feel like at this point in my life, as a middle-aged person who has been a baseball fan for decades, and <laughs> like in a way, the experience of remembering Bernard Gilkey is almost the point of being a baseball fan at this point in my life. It, like a large part of the point is that I can remember Bernard Gilkey mm -hmm. and that it gives me a little bit of a jolt of happiness to remember Bernard Gilkey. Yep. But why? Why is that? Why Do you have a theory for why it is fun to remember any of the thousands of player names that have lodged in our in our brains over the course of our long fandoms? Well, I think it's probably to some extent because you're remembering what you were when you learned about Bernard Gilkey the first time, right? You're remembering what the world was like then. It's it's just like any nostalgia exercise. I think it's like the member berries from South Park. It's just like, remember this, remember that. Yeah, because that was this formative period in my life. Like, I don't know if it would be fun, for instance, to I think remember some guys is best when you are of roughly the same age as the person who is remembering some guys, because if the person is remembering guys that you don't remember, that's not quite as entertaining. It's it's still fun. I think like David's a, a little older than I am, and so often he would be remembering guys that I didn't remember firsthand. I, I might know their names and a little bit about them from just learning about them later, but I wouldn't have any personal memories of those guys. And I still liked watching because David is very clever and funny, but I think it's it's best if it prompts the same memory in you. So if you were watching someone much older, remember some guys from the 50s or the 60s or something, I don't know, would that be fun? Maybe, but probably not nearly as fun, right? I think a large part of it is that you can also remember the guys. And it's reassuring. I think it's like this shared collective memory. It's this thing we have in common, which takes us back to not necessarily a better time or a simpler time, but maybe a simpler time for you personally because you were a kid at the time and baseball was your world. So 
I think it's that. And maybe there's also an element of sort of like proving that you're a member of this club. Like I, I wouldn't want remembering some guys to be an exclusionary exercise, but there's some like, you know, testing yourself, proving that you know baseball because you remember the most guys. So I, I think that might be an element of it too. Yeah, like I'm looking at the 1991 Twins page right now, and Kirby Puckett was a 1991 Twin, but I don't feel like there. I don't see Kirby Puckett's name in Get Nostalgic, even mm-hmm. though he he was also there at the time. It is specifically the 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 jolt of happiness is the unexpectedness of the name that you are hearing. Yeah, like so Shane Mack, for instance, has a very high remember some guys <laughs> value on this page, uh-huh. and. I would say that Scott Leyes, for some reason, has a high, high remember some guys value to me. Dan Gladden does not, because uh-huh. Dan Gladden is still in my life as a broadcaster, uh-huh. and it, I haven't, I have heard his name in the last twenty years. Yeah. And so the, there's something about the name having essentially fallen into like ice. Off mm-hmm. out out in like some mountain somewhere, and and then been frozen, unchanged, and then we're unearthing it and going, oh, this name is still the same. It's it's unchanged. <laughs> yeah. Denny Nagel is still the mm-hmm. same name now that it was, and uh, like uh, you're 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 flooded with recognition. Yeah. And it can't be like a superstar. That's not fun to remember because everyone remembers those guys and we remember them regularly, even if they're not playing anymore. You come across their name because they're at the top of various leaderboards or whatever. So they're never far from your mind. Yeah. So it, it has to be someone sort of obscure. And that's, again, what I was getting at. It's like you had to be there, basically, in order to really remember the guys. I mean, they're guys I remember who I I don't have any memories of. As I was saying, I, I know that they existed, but I don't know if that really qualifies as remembering them. Maybe it does, but it's not like it transports me back to a time when they were playing and I was experiencing their play. It's like, you know, I I came across that later. I picked it up secondhand. So I think a big part of it is that belonging, that sort of sense of shared collective experience that you are sharing with the person who is remembering the guys with you or who is prompting you. Like it's it's more fun as a group activity too, right? It's not something that you enjoy as much, I don't think, as a solo activity. It's like if you're getting together with some other people to remember some guys that they also remember, then it's much better that way. And if you have cards, if there's a visual attached to it too, that's even better because then you get the 80s cards that you remember and you get the facial hair that was popular at the time. And that's a big part of remembering some guys like that was probably the number one thing that David would remember about guys was their mustache or their beard or their glasses or something that made them distinctively of that time. Yeah, it. I still don't quite know what my relationship is to a player like Shane Mack, who is one of the great, was one of the greatest baseball players in the world. And so at the thing that I valued the most at the time, he was one of the best in the world at the time, but also his identity is particularly for remember some guys purposes his identity is one of of, of mediocrity of of mm-hmm. you can't remember 
like whether he was good or not. He, he wasn't that great. He wasn't a legend or anything like that. And it's like you're kind of stuck in between. Remember, some guys is sort of stuck in between honoring them, <laughs> honoring their achievement and also ironically mocking the mediocrity of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird to have these players who are sort of godlike to you or were godlike to you as kids because they were I mean you would have gone and waited in line 2 hours to get Gene Larkin's autograph when you were 10 and but now as an adult looking back you remember Gene Larkin as the guy who was you know just some generic utility player out of thousands of them and that clash between recognizing the lack of 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 historic accomplishment <laughs> but also how large they loomed in your life and how large they loomed in your imagination at the time and how there were at bats where gene larkin would come up and your mood for the day was dependent on him. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not quite sure whether this is an honor or if it's ironic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's both at the same time. And somehow yeah. we're holding both of those things together. Yeah. And I think it's like it's partly a, a prideful activity. Like you're you're almost boasting about remembering the guys. Like yeah. I, I remember Paul Sorrento or whatever. And you, you feel good about the fact like you're a, a true member of the tribe because you still retain some memory of Paul Sorrento. But then it's simultaneously sort of a self-deprecating oh, totally. activity because yeah. it's like – why do I commit some space in my brain to Paul Sorrento? This is the most useless information that I could possibly retain. And yet I can call to mind something about Paul Sorrento right now when I have forgotten much more important and historically relevant information from the period when Paul Sorrento was playing. So I think it's, again, both at the same time. And it's also like it, it's kind of the opposite when instead of remembering some guys, you, you come across those guys now and they're old and you read about them dying or getting in trouble or you just read that they're 80 years old now or something and that just makes you feel old that reminds you of your mortality whereas remembering some guys when you remember them they are perpetually 33 or whatever and you're remembering a time when you were further from death also and uh, i think it's reassuring in that way in the way that it is to remember whatever fashion from that time or tv shows from that time or music from that time mm -hmm. yeah 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 john john boyce in the about i don't know eight or so years ago had a bit where he would he would ask who is the most Braves player mm -hmm. or who is the most Royals player. Or I think he would sometimes say like, who is the most Orioles and Braves player, like player who represented somehow was on both of those. And there'd be this rush to name players who were Royals and uh -huh. or whatever team. And that was sort of the same concept. And Josh Wilker, of course, what he, when he would write cardboard gods, it would be sort of the same thing. He would pick a, a random player who was usually from a generation just slightly behind mine. And so I would read Josh Wilker more for the writing than for the for the nostalgia. But I think the nostalgia was certainly a part of, of his reason for writing those and why a lot of people like them. So it is a very powerful thing. I And I, I don't think it's just the way that 
David does it. I think that this is the nostalgia is like kind of a second or third phase of being a baseball fan. Mm -hmm. You have your childhood experience where you're, you know, passionate and you think that you're the first, you know, that your generation is the generation. This is like the the one true era of baseball. And then as you get older, you get I think you go through a period of nostalgia for your youth. And then I think when you get older still, you get in a, I think, I haven't gotten there yet, but I think then you get into a phase of of over-idealization and only your generation, only your youth is real baseball. Mm-hmm. The, then you start to get angry about <laughs> the, the baseball that is too unlike your youth. Mm-hmm. And so right now we're in the, I think we're in the, uh, you and I and David are all in that nostalgia phase and it's interesting. So I asked David, what he attributed it to. He answered, and then he asked if that helps. And uh, I think implied in that is that he knew that I was going to read this. But then I asked if he minded if I read it, and I have not heard back from him yet. So I'm crossing my fingers, and I hope that I'm not going to. So David said, in terms of the actual process with regard to the remembering, it's some combination of basic nostalgia stuff and to finally go ahead and be pretentious about it, feeling some connection to the sort of broader story of baseball. I noticed early in my life that baseball stuff stuck in my head in a way that other, more useful things just didn't. I'm lucky to have been able to use that for work a bit, but I think that's true of a lot of people. These random transient dudes that you care about intensely for a summer or two snag in your memory as a fan in a very particular way. It's like the way I remember summer camp counselors uh, or teachers, but they don't make baseball cards for them. And also all of them, in my case, had less interesting names than like Bernard Gilkey. So that part kind of explained itself. It is true that a large part of this, a large part of being a baseball fan as a kid is exposure to a lot of names, Mm -hmm. different names, names like unfamiliar names, unfamiliar first names, unfamiliar last names. The first thing that I ever remember writing, like uh, attempting to write as a writer, which I like when I was first identifying as a writer, was a book that I wrote for my grandmother as a Christmas present when I was like seven. And the concept of this book was very simple. It was saying how it was showing how important the letter the alphabet was because if you didn't have the letter m for instance you wouldn't have marshmallows i don't know why i thought this was important to think about like can you imagine a world without marshmallows if we only had arshellos like that like somehow like somehow that would mean that there was no like sugar or what ah, what was i doing anyway so this was a I, this was a a multi-part series where I would do like all foods and <laughs> and all animals and then all names. We would have no mics if there were no M's because everybody would be named Ike. All right. <laughs> this is the book I wrote for my grandmother for Christmas. And so I had to think I had I needed to come up with 26 names. And as a six or a seven year old, ordinarily that would be very hard. But as a six or seven year old baseball fan, it was really easy. I had hundreds of names in my Mm -hmm. storage and that comes up all the time when my daughter will ask me about a name or uh, like she'll be reading a a book and there will be a an an unfamiliar name maybe an archaic name or maybe a name from a different part of the world or or a name that i whatever and she'll ask me about that name and inevitably almost without fail 
I will say, well, I knew a baseball player with that name. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, uh, the names are a big part of it. But uh, yeah, summer camp counselor. That's a good comp because I also remember summer camp counselors that seemed so big at the time, so cool, so memorable. And looking back now, of course, they were 17. They were just 17 (laughs) year old kids. There was nothing particularly special about them. And yet, if you put eight of us from the cabin together to uh, be nostalgic about that 17 year old, all of those feelings would kind of come come back to you. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you'll enjoy remembering Marwin Gonzalez 30 years from now, the way that you enjoy remembering Shane Mack right now? Well, it doesn't feel like I will. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel to me like I will now. I don't even feel emotional about Marwin Gonzalez at all. And I don't, Mm -hmm. I probably didn't feel him. I think at the time, most of the Shane Mack experience as a kid is you're flipping through cards hoping to get Ken Griffey Jr. and instead you get Shane Mack. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of disappointing unless you happen to, for some reason, need Shane Mack to fill out your set. And so then your, your binders of cards would just be filled with like eight of the same Shane Mack card. Mm-hmm. And it certainly was it's not like Shane Mack was my favorite player or anything. I had no emotion about Shane Mack at the time. So no, I I, I would not the feeling I have now is no. How how could I care about Marwin Gonzalez? But I'm sure I will. And in fact, you know, JJ Putts, JJ Putts, I should say, mm-hmm. JJ Putts is one of these players on the Hall of Fame ballot. And the first uh, I mean, when I saw his name, I thought, oh, yeah, J.J. Putz. And it was like he retired five years ago. I was writing mm-hmm. about him. I wrote about him. I wrote yeah. about him as a professional. And I do have a little bit of that feeling about J.J. Putz. So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. I will. I think I'll have feelings about Marwin Gonzalez. Okay. We'll see. All right. So the Hall of Fame ballot this year has... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 brand new players. I uh, don't know how this will go, but I'm just going to say a player's name and we're each going to say the first thing that we think of when we think of that player. Okay. I think that inevitably we will sometimes want to say more than one thing. I'm going to make allowances that we can say up to two things <laughs> if we want to. Okay. Uh, are the first thing. And so. should I say, I mean, often the first thing that I will think about is just like what that player looked like or, you know, his, his batting stance or something. Are, sure. are, we, are we excluding that very basic level of recall? Because I won't always have like, oh, I remember this big hit he had or something like that. Often it's just a general impression of what type of player he was or what he no. looked like or something, which is, you know, I guess that's a thing, but it's sort of nebulous. I think that's the point. I'm, okay. I'm I'm interested to see. I have not really reviewed these. I haven't thought about these. I'm going to be able to also come up with my first thought because I haven't come up with the first thought yet. And part of what I'm interested to see is what what even type of thing we come up with if we mm-hmm. have answers at all. Okay. So, all right. I'm going to name a player <laughs> and then we'll t- you can take a split second to think about it and then we'll say what the first thing we we thought of for that player is, okay? All right. All right. First thing, Jose Valverde. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think I've my got thing, two things. All right. I I think my thing is his very bombastic save celebrations. Uh, That's what remind most me, stands out in my mind. Yeah, that was peak save celebration time. Like I feel like yeah. there was that there was like a six or seven year period 
where there was a, a little bit of kind of competition for <laughs> save celebration bombast and jose valverde yeah. uh, was really the best of them right yeah i don't think he had a specific like he wasn't shooting off an arrow but he was just extremely demonstrative he would you know do like a, a skip and a hop and fist pump or maybe raise both arms and yell something i mean he kind of incorporated all the ways that you can celebrate a save except not like a choreographed routine necessarily he didn't have a, a signature move so much as it was just sort of unrestrained celebration i guess my the two things i thought of one was that i vaguely recall him having a season where he had a I think he saved every game. Like, I think he went like 50 for 50 in saves Uh something. And that this was a pretty big achievement to him. But at the time, he was not really seen by analysts as an elite closer, Mm -hmm. as an elite reliever. And so there was a little bit of a clash between the perfection of his traditional stats and the perception of his pitching. Uh, that's that's a little vague, but basically what I remember is he went, I think he went, I think he went like 47 for 47 in saves and that was a big deal, like <laughs> something like a record or something like that. The other thing I remember is the 2000, I think 12 postseason when he started the postseason as the Tigers' longtime closer and by midway through Phil Coke was closing oh, yeah. games because he uh-huh. had he had uh, Jose Valverde had kind of bombed in the postseason at yeah. the worst time. Yeah, I remember his nickname Papa Grande. I guess that's oh, that's a thing we can remember. That's right. I had forgotten about that. If you go, I just went to his uh, his Baseball Reference page, and the the headshot is perfect. It like captures him seemingly in mid save celebration i don't know mid ejaculation i don't know (laughs) not that kind but i don't know what he's screaming about but uh he's screaming about something it's like i assume that's not an official headshot so i don't know if that's just like a cropped photo of him because if you mouse over it you can see his previous headshots that bref has and it's just standard headshots and then this one is like an action shot of him in mid yell so i don't know it's fitting yeah, I just uh, I'm looking at a an article from his retirement, which was headlined "The Crazy Career of Papa Grande Is Probably Over," and uh, I found this article because I was looking for the fun fact, which was that he was perfect in 2011, 49 for 49 in converting saves, which is uh-huh. pretty impressive, right? Yeah. And so this photo, fo- this article has two photographs at the top of the blog post. One of them, he is kind of squatting and screaming and beating his chest. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, he is slamming his glove to the ground. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So very demonstrative, like you say. And uh, so yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's what okay. we remember about Jose Valverde, who saved 288 games in mm-hmm. his career and finished fifth and sixth in Cy Young votes, and twice got MVP votes, and was a three-time All Star. Yeah. And what might as well do this? How much do you think he earned in his career? Oh boy, this is always so difficult. Thirty million. Forty-two million. Okay. All right. And we sh- we should also say that all of these guys that we're remembering right now are uh, pretty high caliber players because they made the Hall of Fame ballot to begin with. So you know, lots of guys who it would be fun to remember were not good enough or didn't last long enough to qualify for the ballot. So 
in a way, uh, these guys aren't even obscure enough to to qualify for full remembering guys like uh, did did Shane Mack. Shane Mack probably didn't make a, a Hall of Fame ballot, but he's probably. I mean, he was a pretty good player at times. But right, it's, uh, yeah, right. Just Jose blanket, Valverde. All these guys are pretty good. Yes, Jose Valverde uh, teammates. The year that he saved forty nine games include. Uh, Andy Dirks and Wilson Betamit and right, Casper yeah. Wells. Those are some real remember yeah. some guys type. Shane Max didn't play 10 years, so not, not eligible. Wow, that's yeah. shocking to me. Mm-hmm. All right. Next name, Alfonso Soriano. Ooh. All right. I saw a lot of Alfonso Soriano. All right. Uh, all right. <laughs> I got two again. Dang it. Yeah. I've Well, I've probably got more than two, but I, I guess I'll say that, uh, well, I remember his just very coiled stance he was uh, sort of a slight guy but very wiry he had those strong wrists and he would just whip the bat around and even though he was not bulky he had a ton of power and I guess this is a, a second thing that I'm remembering but he came extremely close to being a 40-40 guy he was he did he was a 40-40 one homer. Guy. oh that's right yeah because there was the one year where he Almost got there, right? He had 39 one year, I remember. Yeah. Like he had the stolen bases, but he was stuck on 39, I think, for the end of the season and he never got there. But then that's right, he got there after that. So, yeah, uh, he was obviously quite good. And then uh, I guess if I can remember another thing, it's the, the home run he hit in Game 7 of the 2001 World Series, which I think gets overlooked a lot because, of course, that game ended up going the other way. But he was the one who gave the Yankees the lead in the eighth inning off of Kurt Schilling, who had been dominant that whole postseason. And Soriano hit a a solo shot, I think, and I think it was an 0-2 home run and he kind of went out of the zone to get it as he often tended to do and uh, he like raised his arm rounding first base and that was a big homer everyone would remember that homer if Rivera hadn't blown the save in uh, the next inning but now we remember Tony Womack and Luis Gonzalez instead of Soriano but I think Soriano had a bunch of big hits and game winners or walk-off hits in that postseason. 40-40 40-40 is one of the things that I most remember. 40-40 yeah. is still a pretty rare thing. I think maybe four players have done it. And the first time it happened, you know, you thought they were going to give the Nobel Prize to Jose Canseco the first time that, <laughs> that he did it. I mean, it just seemed like such a a big mark to, to, to pass. And it still has been done very rarely. And I don't know if anybody has actually done it since Soriano. I'll have to check that. But I remember the 40-40. Particularly, I remember it because the other thing I remember about Soriano is that he was traded for Brad Wilkerson. And I remember <laughs> yeah. that offseason being convinced that Brad Wilkerson was going to break out and be a superstar. Uh, I think that Pakoda really loved Brad Wilkerson and kind of didn't like Alfonso Soriano, who was leaving a hitter's ballpark and had been, you know, had declined a little from his peak years with the Yankees. And it seemed like maybe he was actually on the decline. Like, so Soriano's two years with Texas, he only had an, an OPS plus of, of 105 those two years. And so there was a, a feeling, I think, at the time that maybe... Brad Wilkerson might actually be the better ball player. And I was I was all on board the Brad Wilkerson bandwagon <laughs> at the time. And mm-hmm. then Soriano goes to Washington and is 40-40 and Brad Wilkerson didn't do anything. And uh, yeah. so I remember him. I, you know, it, there was this weird period in the 2000s where 
like you would take these really contrarian stances because it felt like the easy answer, the simple answer, we was had to be wrong. We were we were so against the simple answer that we were constantly looking for places where actually Brad Wilkerson is better than Alfonso Soriano. And then the extremely predictable thing, which is like the much more famous player who everybody obviously thinks is better, outperforms your breakout pick. <laughs> and you're like surprised that the breakout pick didn't beat Alfonso Soriano. So I just remember feeling a little bit abashed by that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's Alfonso Soriano. Uh, let's go to Josh Beckett. Oh, boy. Josh Beckett. Well, I guess the number one thing that came to my mind, I don't know if this is really representative of Josh Beckett, but just the fact that he was in that giant trade, Mm -hmm. the Dodgers-Red Sox trade with Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez and everyone, James Loney, whoever else was in that deal. Beckett was, uh, I guess, one of the players who was still pretty good at that time. Or, well, I don't know. He had been good fairly recently, at least. And so there was some hope that he would still have something to contribute to the Dodgers. And I I guess he was not terrible for them, but he didn't last much longer. So that's uh, not really a very representative thing about Josh Beckett because he was a great pitcher at times and won World Series or at least a World Series. But uh, yeah, that's what came to mind. Yeah, that experience of trying to untangle what a player's value is given their contract was a big part of of that period of baseball where, you know, Josh Beckett was traded. And I remember trying to figure out whether he was considered an asset in that trade or whether he was part of the dump part of that trade. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That was when we were both writing. And so uh, we have uh, we're filtering this through our experience of trying to generate content content. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I remember uh, thinking of that trade and trying to disentangle whether Josh Beckett was 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 somebody the Dodgers were happy to get or whether the Red Sox were merely happy to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. I remember two periods of Josh Beckett's career, both of them specific moments, I should say, not not that specific, but both of them high periods for him. One is in 2007 when he was a Cy Young runner up. And I remember having a conversation with a friend uh, that year when we were just talking about his pitches, his stuff, and how I thought he might be the best pitcher in baseball at that Mm -hmm. point uh, because the visuals of his pitches were so extraordinary and you felt like he could manipulate a ball like nobody else at that period. This was after, you know, the Pedro Maddox, Randy Johnson had all either declined. Basically, they were all still active, but all in decline. And there was a a little bit of a vacuum for who the best pitcher in baseball was. Uh, And Josh Beckett just seemed like he could do things with the baseball that nobody else could and that he had finally reached that full flourishing period of his career. And then that was really that was sort of it. That was uh, his peak was one year. The other thing I remember is my cousin getting married during Josh Beckett's performance in, I think, game six of the 2003 World Series when he pitched the Marlins uh, to that title. He was the uh, MVP of that series. Yeah. yeah, So when I hear Josh Beckett's name, I think about the banquet hall that I was in and I see (laughs) the colors of the walls and I hear the, the, the ambient noise of that wedding ceremony. And I remember the awkward best man speech. And uh, I remember trying to 
get home late that night. I didn't get to see that start. I just knew that it was happening. I was Mm -hmm. hearing updates. Yeah, really good postseason pitcher. And Mm -hmm. that uh, he was also in the the Hanley Ramirez trade, which is another notable trade he was involved in. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Uh, Heath Bell. (laughs) Okay. Well, I don't know if this is just because we were just talking about David, but I remember what I'm sure David would remember, which is that he was traded from the Mets and immediately got good after that. (laughs) So he was, uh, I remember being surprised when Heath Bell became really great for the Padres, like uh, the first year that he was with the Padres, that sort of took me by surprise. And then I also remember that he used to sprint in from the bullpen which was always an amusing sight because he was not really someone who was physically built for sprinting, but I guess that was his way of psyching himself up on the way to the mound. Yeah, I also remember Heath Bell for getting really good right after he got traded from the Mets, and I'm unlike uh, David and and, and you, I am not from New York. I remember (laughs) that anyway. That was This was prophecy by baseball prospectus at the time. There was a sense that uh, his his performance had actually been quite good in the minors right. and that the yeah. Mets had been blowing him, wasting him, and that he was poised for a breakout. And then this was that period when Kevin Towers was just collecting uh, yeah. strike-throwing relievers who would go to Petco and become, um, you know, like mid-ones ERA pitchers. And that's that's what happened with Heath Bell. Yeah, he had much better peripherals during his years with the Mets, even at the major league level, than he did his ERA. So big gaps there. I don't know if anyone was talking about XFIP at the time. Probably not. But there were like gaps of two runs or more his last couple of years with the Mets there. I'm looking at Heath Bell's search results on Baseball Prospectus, and uh, it is a picture of him in a Nationals hat which I don't remember, huh. and it is says Heath Bell pitcher, New York Yankees, which I don't remember. If you wanted to tell me two things that are the least memorable about Heath Bell, it is his time with the Nationals, apparently, and his time with the Yankees, also apparently. Yeah, I'm on his page, and he did not pitch in the majors for either of those teams, so it must have been late in his career, bouncing around the minors or something. Also, Orioles, he was an Oriole. I don't remember mm-hmm. that either. Nope, not in the majors. In the majors, he was a Met, a Padre, a Marlin. I remember the Marlins here. Yeah, and yeah. a Diamondback and briefly a Ray. Yeah, well, the Marlins year was pretty significant because that was the year that the Marlins signed a whole bunch of people. And most of the moves seemed pretty good and sensible. And it was like, oh, look, the Marlins are trying. They're, this is going to be good. This is going to be interesting. And then they signed Heath Bell, who who seemed to have almost no value at that point because his peripherals had been crashing and he was like 34 years old. And they signed him to what seemed to be much bigger contract than anybody had predicted. And the whole Marlins offseason then looked like it got reframed from, oh, they're finally putting it together to, oh, they're just unhinged. Like mm-hmm. Heath Bell was was so was was such a mocked deal at the time. Like he was not seen as being a smart addition at all, and it reframed all the other moves as maybe just the Marlins being the Marlins, mm-hmm. which ultimately it was. All right, next Brian Roberts. Who? All right, for me it's uh, this is sort of a, a nebulous one. I think just I saw a lot of him when he was with the Orioles and would play the Yankees a bunch of times every year and he was just a really good all-around player at his peak that's uh, basically what I remember like he got on base he stole bases he kind of he had like one big year 
I don't remember which year it was, but he had a big year where I, I think he hit for more power than he typically did. And he was just like a really, really great player, like one of the best players. And I don't think he really repeated that, but he was quite good for, for several years, just kind of a all-around good player. Yeah, I uh, he was. What I remember about him was not the all-around. It was the doubles. He had, uh-huh. I think maybe he he had like 50 doubles and maybe also like led the league in doubles a couple times. Am I close there? Yeah, I'm looking now. Yeah, he had, yeah, he had big doubles years. He had 50 or more three times. Yeah, exactly. So big doubles hitter, which uh, is always enticing. It always makes you wonder whether he's going to, whether those doubles are going to turn into home runs. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was also very fast. So he, there was a speed power thing, but then there was the period of, of terrible injuries and he he couldn't stay healthy. And this is the, the story of the second baseman who has a big year, like a really big year. And his peak lasts like two years though. It's, it's always, it seems like it's always second baseman. There's a whole long run of Mm -hmm. second baseman in our lives who had big, big, big years, but it was very fast. So you've got Marcus Giles, and you've got Mark Loretta, and you've got Aaron Hill, maybe Brett Boone could fit in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jose Vidro is one of those. <laughs> yeah. Brian Roberts, of course, is one of them. Carlos Baerga was a little longer than that, but it was just a few years at the peak of his career, and then it was it was over for him too. So there's always some second baseman who just puts it all together and has like, you know, 26 homers and a little bit of speed and like a six or a seven war. And then two years later, it's just gone. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The year I was remembering was 2005, 7.3 baseball reference war that mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he had concussion issues and maybe some sort of PD connection at some point and he didn't do much after 30, but mm-hmm. yeah, his, his second half of his 20s, quite good. Yeah. Loved Brian Roberts. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see. Next we have Eric Chavez. Ooh. Okay. All right. Uh, with Chavez, I think, well, I mean, A, I remember him for the back problems. It was always a back problem. So being perpetually injured was one of his things. And you always thought like, wow, if he could just stay healthy, because when he was healthy he played well and when he did have healthy seasons he was very good but he never could really stay healthy and then the other thing I I think I remember is just his general defensive excellence like diving plays in foul territory catching pop-ups in foul territory like that that big expansive foul territory in Oakland in my mind he would just range all over there and make some pretty incredible plays what I remember is, uh, I'm going to say it was probably 2004, before the 2004 season, I remember Peter Gammons picking him as his AL MVP pick for that season, uh-huh. before the season. And I remember adopting that position and also believing that Eric Chavez was going to win the MVP award. And secondarily, what I remember is within the last few years, looking at his page and realizing that he never made an all-star game. It felt like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's obviously the, the sadness of the way that his career was derailed by injuries after he was so good, but it felt like for those few years when he was with Oakland, he was fully actualized. It never felt like he was, he needed to get better. He was a superstar mm-hmm. at the time and yet somehow never made an all-star game, which I guess now that, now that I think about it, if 
Anthony Rendon had developed back issues last offseason, we would probably would be thinking about his career the same way, where Rendon was essentially an MVP caliber player every year and pretty widely recognized as a superstar, and yet somehow the most basic recognition of a superstar had eluded him, and he had somehow not been an all-star. So Chavez made it his whole career without ever making an all-star game, which is wild. I mean, mm-hmm. he had he had a, just like a bunch of great years, MVP finishes. He was a gold glove and a silver slugger the same year. How do you win the gold glove and the silver slugger? What other What else is a third baseman beating you at? That they're making the all-star game in front of you. I guess fame. I guess yeah. Previous accomplishments, maybe. Yeah, and he kept trying to come back year after year after year, and he would just play a few games here and there, and uh, usually it didn't go that well. Although he did have that like renaissance season toward the end of his career. He was with the Yankees, and he got hurt, I think, again. But when he was healthy, yeah, actually, his the last three years of his career, he had a 120 OPS or higher but each time it was like 113 games, 80 games, 44 games, and then he was done. But even then, he could kind of hit. Yeah, he could. I re- that 2012 season was a lot of fun. I think there was a there was a, a lot of popular joy about his his resurgence and the fact that he had found a role as a as a a, a part time player with the Yankees, right. having success on a winning team, really crucial, some big hits, and that was a, a nice little phase after mm-hmm. a lot of, after like four years where I mean the four years before that were every bit as bleak as say the final four years of David Wright's career. He mm-hmm. he never played more than 175 plate appearances in those four years. He was never anywhere close to average. I mean, four years is a long time for a player who was also at the time like the one highly paid player on the Oakland A's. And because of that, there was because of how much we filtered teams uh, through their payrolls at the time. Um, there was a sense that you know he was he was burdensome to them, and so that's a, that made it especially I think hard during those four years. And so when he finally came out of that as as a as a valuable player who we had kind of thought was just playing out his contract until he re- could retire, it was really a joyful time. Mm-hmm. All right, JJ puts. Yeah, I uh, I don't remember that much specific about him other than that he was very big and threw very hard and had one year where yeah. he struck out a ton of guys. <laughs> That's what I remember. One good year. I, mm-hmm. I was uh, If I had to guess, I would guess it was a, I'm going to say a 1.15 ERA and a ton of strikeouts. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember. One good year. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was incredible. All right, I'm looking now. 1.38 ERA, 13th in MVP voting. Uh, for Seattle. And it's it's very funny that we both mentioned ton of strikeouts because by the standards of just 10, 10 years later, there weren't that many strikeouts. Yeah. Like he was striking <laughs> out 10 per nine. Big <laughs> deal. Yeah. <laughs> and wasn't he in a big, like, wasn't he in like a big five for one trade from Seattle where, was he in like the Franklin, what, what, uh, Darren O'Day maybe? Was he in like a Darren O'Day trade or someone was franklin gutierrez was he in a franklin gutierrez trade who was he, he in was, a, yeah a three-team trade with, with sean green and jeremy reed to the mets yes okay so sean green not darren o'day wait uh-huh. is sean am i thinking of sean no joe smith joe smith not darren yes o'day. joe smith so was joe in smith it. and franklin gutierrez yeah and franklin gutierrez yeah and mm-hmm. uh so yeah he was basically a closer who got traded for like five pieces that was Mm -hmm. seattle's that was the year that seattle 
decided that they were going to commit to defense. And so they mm-hmm. spent the offseason. This was the year, I think, after the Rays had gotten good all of a sudden. And, and the, the articles were all about how uh, the big change had been that they had upgraded their defense. And then the Mariners did the same thing. And they had this incredible defense on paper at the time. And Gutierrez was a part of that. And um, I think people were excited about the Mariners in 2009, is my recollection, because of the mm-hmm. J.J. Putz trade. Yeah, well, and they did well. I mean, that was like the, the Jack Z defensive makeover time, right? Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Putz was a big part of that. All right, Brad Penny. Boy, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't really have any specific memories of Brad Penny, I don't think. Uh, I, I mean, I remember who Brad Penny was, but uh, as far as like specific years or seasons or anything, I don't know. I remember him as a right-handed Marlins pitcher. That's, uh, and he was pretty good for a while. Yeah. I remember Penny as being part of that Marlins rotation in 2003, which at Mm -hmm. the time, and also in retrospect was, it was really young and really deep. And it seemed like the Marlins could have a dynasty just on their pitching alone. So they had 25-year-old Brad Penny, 21-year-old Dontrell Willis in his rookie year, 23-year-old Josh Beckett, 26-year-old A.J. Burnett, and they also had Mark Redman, who was good that year, and Carl Pavano, who was good that year. And I remember Penny being part of that and vaguely remember liking him the most as the hipster Marlins pitcher to like because he Mm -hmm. wasn't quite as heralded, but he had good strikeout to walk and ground ball rates. And so by whatever Pakoda was using in 2004, he projected to be pretty good. And I think he had a couple of like really dominant starts at the time. And then wasn't he part of the Paul DePodesta trades that everybody revolted against? I don't remember. Yeah, he was traded for Paul LaDuca. So he was uh-huh. in the Paul LaDuca trade that got Paul DePodesta, you know, basically run out of Los Angeles because DePodesta had traded the human element. Uh, Penny was the the main, Penny and Hesop Choi were the main players that the Dodgers got back. And the baseball prospectus position at the time was, look at how the Dodgers just got these two great players. And the LA Times position at the time was, can you believe that Google Boy has traded away the heart and soul of the team. And mm-hmm. when the Dodgers, I don't know, did they collapse that year or did they just fail to to advance something? It was, I guess they didn't collapse because they won the NL West, but maybe they didn't win the, uh, the division series. It was seen as proof that Paul DePodesta had blown it, had ruined it uh, in the same way that like uh, the John Lester trade that Billy Bean did was seen as uh, flawed because they lost the wildcard game. Uh, mm-hmm. And they didn't have the the heart or the whatever they needed at the time. So mm-hmm. Brad Penny was that. Yeah. Which is weird to associate someone mainly with a trade that he was a good part of and yet cost a general manager's job. It's mm-hmm. very uh, weird. He's just such a he's just such a supporting player in that trade, and yet that's mostly I see Brad Penny as being significant to the Paul DePodesta story. Mm-hmm. She probably wasn't even that. Probably Paul DePodesta. I'm probably over exaggerating uh, how much that trade even factored into Paul DePodesta's eventual demise in Los Angeles. Adam Dunn. Whew. All right. Well, I guess I remember a lot about Adam Dunn. I remember 
he hit like a 530-foot homer one time, or at least it was reported to, to be that long. And I remember that he was the big donkey, and I remember that he was sort of a like sabermetric versus old school stats kind of guy like the uh he was a fire joe morgan guy who would come up because people would not like adam dunn people who liked uh old school ways of playing the game or whatever and saber people liked him because he hit homers and he got on base and walked a lot and uh then it was always like adam dunn versus juan pierre was a something i wrote about when he retired because they had identical wars at the time which was interesting because they were such dissimilar players and I remember that he hit 40 homers a bunch of times. I think uh, some consecutive seasons in there, he had 40 homers. Yeah, I remember him hitting 159, and I remember oh, yeah, him. That's right. I, re- I remember him being fast when he came up. That he was huge and had huge minor league numbers, and he also was fast. And when he was 22, he might have been the most physically impressive baseball player in the world to me at the time. He reminded me of how I felt about Frank Thomas when Frank Thomas had come up and just looked like a high schooler playing against middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I loved Adam Dunn along with everybody else. It was part of the part of the mid-aughts culture war that you liked players like Adam Dunn <laughs> and other people hated players like Adam Dunn and you would uh, stand him to your death. So I loved Adam Dunn at the time, but you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's see. Carlos Pena. Well, with Pena, obviously, remember the Moneyball stuff about how there was, uh, you know, Carlos Pena versus Hatterberg controversy. And then the A's traded him. And then I really remember how he broke out with the race in 2007 and was like one of the best hitters in baseball, if not the best hitter in baseball. And he was like a free agent signing that no one had really paid any attention to. And he was not making much money, but he was hitting 40 something homers all of a sudden. And that kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. I remember Carlos Pena being left-handed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember a lot of, I remember him also the things you said. But for some reason, the first thing that came to my mind is he's left-handed, and I just stuck on that. I remember him being a really a top prospect, a name that you knew well before he made the major leagues. And I remember him, I don't know, I just, I guess I don't really remember. I just remember a left-handed power hitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember other things, but I mostly remember him just being a classic left-handed power hitter who would come up with his left-handed power, and that's it. All right. Yeah. Paul Canerco? Well, I just, I mean, I remember how beloved he was by White Sox fans. I remember he had a big hit. I mean, he he caught the last out of the 2005 World Series as a first baseman, and he, like, ran out to the mound with his arms raised. And I think he had had a grand slam in that series, like a come-from-behind grand slam. Maybe it was was one of the earlier games, and uh, so I remember that specific hit. But uh, otherwise, I guess just sort of generally how long he was a White Sox and how popular he was there. Yeah, I remember I remember imagining him as a catcher. I remember him being a major, like a 40 home run major leaguer and imagining him as a catching prospect, which is what he originally was. And I don't know why, but I remember him <laughs> okay. for... I remember him being a free agent in the year that the 
the before the last couple years, the year when the free agent market had last kind of collapsed was the year that Paul Konerka was a free agent. And so there was a whole group of free agents who were not getting much, not getting as much as maybe as we had expected at the time. And I think Canerco got the biggest deal of the offseason, and it was for like $48 million. It wasn't like a big deal. There were no huge deals. So I remember him being a free agent that offseason as well. Raul Ibanez? <laughs> well, I guess I primarily remember Jeff Sullivan's Twitter avatar of Raul Ibanez oh, yeah, throwing the ball into the ground. But I also, on a more positive note, remember just Ibanez blossoming late and hitting like more homers in his 30s than a lot of legendary players and like 2012 when the Yankees got him he went on a pretty incredible run and he hit a ton of home runs for them in not a lot of playing time and then was super clutch in the postseason that year and had like a couple late game winning I think home runs and there was like one game where he hit a game tying home run and then also hit a game winning home run i think he had like pinch hit for a rod in the middle yeah. of the game or, yeah because a rod was hurt and well uh, was he hurt no a rod was getting benched right well, a rod had been dropped to eighth in the lineup that series and then yeah. he, didn't he actually just get pinch hit for by raul abanez or abanez had somehow be taken a, over in a, almost like a like a semi platoon with him that postseason yeah. well i think a rod was hurt like he had he had a hip thing right and i think because he got surgery for it after yeah. the fact so he wasn't like inactive but he was playing through injury at the time and, and he was bad so yeah i remember that but but yeah just the the general arc of his career was pretty extraordinary yeah i remember th- yeah all of that what you just said first thing i think about is the the drama in that postseason with a rod though where abanez was the other option and was having the postseason of his life with these huge home runs. Uh, And so I just remember his role in that story. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I've said it before. Abanez, I don't even know if this is technically true, but I always think of Abanez as a a player who had a Hall of Fame 30s, but you do most of your work getting to the Hall of Fame in your 20s. So it's not like he got anywhere close to Hall of Fame levels, but for half his career, he was as good as most Hall of Famers are in the same period of their career, mm-hmm. which doesn't count for that much, but always seemed like a pretty impressive achievement. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, Sean Figgins? <sighs> well, I remember how fun he was for a while with the Angels and then how unfun he was after that with the Mariners after they signed him to that deal, or, or was it the Angels who signed him to the deal and then the Mariners acquired him? But... No, Mariners signed him to the deal. Okay, and yeah, he just kind of fell off the table after that but for a while there he was so fun because he was uh small and he would hit lots of doubles right and he he got on base a lot and stole a ton of bases and would hit for high averages and was just sort of a, a spark plug who was quite valuable for a few years yeah i loved sean figgins at the time was one, maybe my favorite player in baseball And I remember him for a few things. I remember him leading the league in walks, even though all he was was a super fast player with no power and like the last person you would walk. I've always been fascinated by players who walk a lot, even though your primary goal as a pitcher is just to not walk that player. You know, old Ricky Henderson is my classic 
example of that. I'm obsessed with the final years of Ricky Henderson's career. And Sean Figgins was kind of like that when he was good. You All you had to do was just don't walk him. He can't hit it over the fence. He's going to steal second. And he led the league in walks. That's crazy. He led the league in walks. Yeah. And so I, I loved that. He was a super utility player. I used that word a lot when I was writing about him mm-hmm. because he was a super utility player who would play everywhere. And then he finally got a position of his own with the Angels, and he was really good at it. He was, a, a, I thought, a, a very underrated defensive third baseman and one of the best at the, at the time. I mean, I remember him him and Beltre basically being the two best defensive third basemen in the game. And I'm looking now, and in fact, that year, 2009, he was a plus 29 third baseman, mm. according to baseball reference, which is a huge number for a third baseman. And so those are the things I remember about Sean Figgins. I love Sean Figgins. Yeah. Also that he was very quiet. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, Raphael Fercal. His arm. I guess oh, that's yeah, the thing that stands out the arm. most. I wish we had stat cast for his arm because uh, it was probably, I, I'd be curious to see how fast he was throwing because he, he just had a, a rocket arm. Yeah, for me, it's his speed. I remember him as the fastest player in baseball for a time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he actually was, but he looked like the fastest when he ran. And he would do this little, like, he would do this running, swinging thing, which was not quite a bunt, but was also not quite a swing. And I don't think I ever saw it work, but it looked like he was trying to invent a new way of hitting this sort of running half swing. So I remember him doing that. I think that when Fercal was in his first couple years, he was uh, maybe the most exciting player in baseball close to it just in sort of the same way that Tatis is now he was extremely fast extremely strong quite young and uh, knew how to hit really well and he felt like he was going to beat you a hundred percent of the time and I'm looking now and it's really amazing how kind of unexceptional his numbers were I remember him (laughs) being way better than these numbers yeah all right Bobby Abreu Ooh, I loved Bobby Abreu. Well, I guess for me what stands out is that he was traded to the Yankees at right around the time that I was starting to get into sabermetric stuff really in a, a big way. So I, I think Baseball Between the Numbers, which was kind of a formative book for me, had come out I think that year, earlier that year, and that kind of converted me. And then the Yankees traded for him. They didn't give up much as I recall I think they gave up their uh, former first round pick who never amounted to anything and a reliever or something and they got Bobby Abreu and he was so selective and so patient and he had such good on base percentages even at that point in his career when it was uh, toward the end it was just sort of a joy to watch him and as someone who had really become converted to the cult of on base percentage and all of that not too long before that he was uh, someone I really enjoyed watching and I think he took playing time maybe from Bernie Williams which was sort of sad because Bernie was maybe my favorite player of all time but that was right at the tail end of his career and he was uh, pretty much done at that point and had been done for a while so it was bittersweet but uh, it was nice to see Abreu who even at that point was just such a, a force in the batter's box and Really is like a near Hall of Famer, not a Hall of Famer for me, I don't think, but but a, a great player. 
I loved Bobby Abreu. I think of him, I remember him having the best eye in baseball. Yeah. Thinking of him mainly as that, the player with the best eye in baseball. I also think of him as having one of the steepest aging curves as a defender. Uh, very mm. few players existed as good as he was when he was young in the field and as bad as he was when he was old in the field. And so I just think of his career arc as being kind of the typical like that is what that is what aging looks like to me mm-hmm. is Bobby Abreu in the field going from young to old and I love that he was such a good hitter so good in the batter's box uh that it never he he, he never was a burden he was even even as a DH even as one of the worst defensive right fielders in his old age he was still uh, a fun player to have on your team uh, and somebody who probably if he came up to bat right now as a 47-year-old, uh, 46-year-old, whatever he is, uh, against my team, I would probably still be nervous. <laughs> yeah, probably still wouldn't swing at bad pitches. But uh... no, he went he went something like, I, I think he went like 15 years without swinging at a 3-0 pitch, and then he <laughs> finally did. Uh-huh. He did have a reputation for being wall shy. I don't know how yeah. merited it was, but... People would certainly say that about him, like he'd be afraid to crash into the wall, and so he would stand back and and let catchable balls go over his head because he didn't want to go close to the wall. Jason Giambi? Uh, Gosh, I mean, I remember him being sweaty, very sweaty, huge throbbing biceps vein, and uh, he just kind of like he went from this like long haired wild child with the A's to this like shaved corporate (laughs) type just straight laced guy with the Yankees which was sort of a strange transition but at least early in his Yankees career he was uh, still really excellent like what he won an MVP award right and he uh, he was one of the best hitters in baseball for a few years there just a really great hitter and then he had some weird like uh, he had a pituitary tumor or something and he lost weight and he missed playing time and I don't know what the story was there but uh, that sort of sapped him of some of his strength but then he had that late period in his career when he became the the veteran mentor and he would go to like the Rockies or whatever and play 40 games or something but be on the roster all year just for leadership which was sort of surprising because no one would have projected that for Jason Giambi when he was young. Yeah, I remember those years, those late years most. They really stuck in my mind. And I particularly remember the year that he was with the Rockies in that role when he was um, when he was actually quite good as a pinch hitter. Uh, he had like a nine something OPS as a pinch hitter. And it seemed like uh, that was his, to me, that was almost like his most fulfilling year because he was he was legendary around the game for his clubhouse presence at that point in a way that um, I think was. Uh, above the other clubhouse uh, gods at the time. He was Mm -hmm. seen as like the titan of them all. Um, And he had this really successful year as a 40-year-old pinch hitter in in an era where there are not many 40-year-old pinch hitters anymore. I also remember him having... So his two incredible years at the beginning of the decade and maybe maybe that whole five-year run from like 2000 to 2005, I guess, so six-year run. this This came when replacement level was still kind of being figured out. And war, which at the time was uh, all there was was warp, was being figured out and being recalibrated and changing from year to year. And they went warp one and then warp three. And and if you look at those old articles at the time, which 
in my writing career, I, I have reason to often consult with old articles, which of course are still in the same amber that they were uh, lodged in at the time. And so they haven't been changed or updated with the wars. And so you see these charts that have war as we knew it in 2003 or 2004. And you'll just come across a Jason Giambi season when he was, you know, he was the best player in the American League at the time. You'll come across a Jason Giambi season where he's like 18 war. (laughs) (laughs) And so in my, in my mind, I just think of those few years of Jason Giambi as being above and beyond anything because they were like 18 war seasons. (laughs) And if you look at them now, they're like nine or 10 war, but all right, Cliff Lee. So Cliff Lee, I I think of as, uh, well, being one of the best pitchers in baseball, maybe the best pitcher in baseball for like uh, a few years there and another sort of late bloomer. I guess uh, because he had had that year where he was terrible and then he went to the minors, right? And then he came back as a new man Mm -hmm. and uh, won a Cy Young Award and it was amazing. And so I remember that transformation and just generally how great his control was and his minuscule walk rates and great strikeout to walk rates ratios. Yeah, that's uh, the strikeout to walk ratio is what I think of. I mean, he was setting records at the time. He was leading the league at the time. and in looking at it now, the strikeouts weren't that high. And at the and now that we use strikeout minus walk rate more as an analytical relationship rather than strikeout to walk rate because of how it can be distorted by uh, the by the denominator, basically, um, <laughs> we Cliffley probably would not rate quite so highly in my mind now as he did at the time. Mm-hmm. But all the same, I mean... These FIPs were outrageous. He led the league in FIP a couple of years. Uh, and in 2000, like 2009, 10, 11, I probably, I, I, I'm pretty sure I thought he was the best pitcher in baseball. And I don't see any reason to reassess that. He probably mm-hmm. was the best pitcher in baseball for maybe as many as five years. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Yeah. That's great. He, I'm glad he's on this ballot. He was definitely a Hall of Fame level pitcher for a non-Hall of Fame level length of time. So yeah. 43 war in just 2,000 innings, which is a, a lot for 2,000 innings. Mm-hmm. All right. And the last the last first timer is, is Derek Jeter. And I don't really have an answer for that. I don't really. No single thing comes to mind. Derek Jeter is, is just a brand uh, yeah. in a way that it's hard for me to think of him as anything other than this bright, shining, famous thing that has always been there. Um, so if I had to think of a single thing, it would probably be, I feel bad saying this. It is probably just the sheer mass of his negative defensive war, which I think is, uh, it's a testament to how great he was that despite all of that, I have zero doubt that he is a hall of famer and an all time great. Uh, mm-hmm. but it is a huge negative <laughs> number. And yeah. I, every time I look at it, I, I sort of like, la- I mean, his and Gary Sheffield's are like the runaway negative defensive wars of our era. Of course he was a shortstop. So uh, he had defensive value that Gary Sheffield didn't, but still it's a big number. And I like looking at that page and, and being uh, overwhelmed by the size of it. Yep. Yeah, I I mean, I remember so many specific things about Jeter that we could do a whole podcast about it. So I don't know that there's any one, like, obviously, you remember the highlight plays that you've seen a million times, the flip plays and the running into the stands to catch the ball play and all the jump and flip plays. And 
I mean, it's it's Derek Jeter. I remember all the commercials Derek Jeter was in. I remember who Derek Jeter dated. <laughs> I remember the walk-off in his last game at Yankee Stadium. I mean, you know, there's a million Derek Jeter memories. You don't have to remember that guy because everyone remembers that guy. All right. Well, we did them all. I'm glad we got to remember these guys because, uh, as Meg often points out, we should remember them even though they're not Hall of Famers, most of them. Just having long careers, getting on the ballot, it's a, a big thing that deserves to be celebrated. And I know that Jay Jaffe has given each of them their due in a series at Fangraphs. So we have remembered those guys. Hope you have too. Yeah, and there really is almost no difference in a in a in a there's almost no difference between these players that we just talked about and the actual Hall of Famers. The margin is so, 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 so razor thin. And it's uh, in a way, it's a kind of a great injustice of the world that there's such a stark dividing line in how history remembers them and in how we see them, because um, they they were also huge parts of the sport and they maximized their talent and they were incredible and they were phenomenal. And um, so, yeah, remembered. All right. That will do it for today. Thank you for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already made that excellent decision, signed up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Michael Hamilton Hart, Ken Copen, Joel Watts, Will Hickman, and Kennard Pack. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. I think we will get to emails next time. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. <laughs> <laughs>